Hello, everyone, and welcome to Wise Brussels Voices. I'm Terry Schultz. And I'm Larissa Lasko, and we're your hosts for this episode of Wise Brussels Voices. Wise Brussels is dedicated to advancing the leadership and professional development of women in the field of international peace, security, and defense. And as part of that effort, we're going to be elevating conversations with and about people who are making a difference, both women and men. Just like in this episode, Larissa, where we're taking a look at staffing in the European Union institutions, the European Institute for Gender Equality tracks appointments of senior administrators in the different decision-making bodies, and we're at less than 34% female. When EU foreign policy chief Joseph Borrell took over this job from his predecessor, Federica Mogherini, last year, he sounded like he had high aspirations to improve the figure among his appointments in the European External Action Service, the EEAS. Let's hear what he told the European Parliament then. Well, gender equality is one of the cornerstones of the European policies. President van der Leyen has clearly stated. Gender equality in foreign policy doesn't mean only to equal equality between men and women on the high post. We have to get it. Now we have about one-third or less than one-third. To be frank, I think that it's going to be impossible to reach 50% on the time you have proposed. I can say yes, but I prefer to be frank and say that the good target, the one we have to fight for, is about 40%. Remember that one-third of the posts on the External Action Service are provided by the National Diplomatic Corps And they also have to fulfill requirements on the number of women. So there is a kind of conflict for the scare resources that is today highly qualified women on the diplomatic corps. But after his appointment, Burrell went ahead and filled three of four high-level jobs in the EEAS with men. Now there's another hugely important appointment coming up with the departure of Helga Schmidt, the secretary general of the EEAS. Burrell has one last chance, which would still only make it one female out of four. And that led Corinna Horst, the deputy director of the Brussels office of the German Marshall Fund and a past president of Wise Brussels, to write and publish an open letter to Burrell, reminding him of his pledge to promote women, as well as pointing out the advantages of gender diversity in creating good policy. And now we are so proud to have with us in this groundbreaking episode of Weiss Brussels Voices, three people who happen to have connections to our chapter, but they are top experts in the field in any case. Spanish Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs and for Ibero-America and the Caribbean, Christina Galak, the former Deputy Secretary General for Economic and Global Issues, retired Swedish diplomat, Christian Leffler, and Deputy Director of the Brussels Office of the German Marshall Fund, Corinna Horst. And Corinna, we very much want to get to this letter you wrote, noting that current High Representative Joseph Burrell seems to be overlooking women when he fills his top jobs. But let's build up to that with the people who know the situation behind the scenes. And we're going to start with Christina. Now, Christina, one of your many previous incarnations as a leader in the European institutions and in NATO was as the European Council's gender equality advisor. 
Now, we were looking at the Equality Index score right now, and it measured last year at just over 67%. And as we all know, Europe is at the top of these lists all the time. So if we're only at 67%, what's holding back progress? Please speak to us about your experience both in the European Union and at the United Nations and at NATO. Thank you very much, Terry, and it's such a, a pleasure to be with great colleagues and, and friends. I can reduce uh, uh, my comment to very few words, which is political will and a structural plan. If the leadership in the institutions have political will, transformations can happen. And together with that, you need a plan. My experience as Equal Opportunities Advisor in the Council was precisely to mobilize the political will that some of the key leaders in the Council, I remember very well, the Director General for Management and um, the Secretary General was also quite in, in line. And then we, in the Equal Opportunities Office, we structured a plan that was focused on how to improve the numbers of women in the senior positions, middle management and senior management. And uh, that was, uh, I ought to say, quite successful. Another comment, the European Commission, in the last period of time, the Juncker Commission was quite successful. There was a political will, and there was a plan. And we saw clearly that the figures of women in senior positions advance. Now, in the majority of the layers of the senior positions, if we are not close to 40, we are about, uh, about 40%. So that are the two key words, uh, a political will and a plan, determination and implementation. Christian, we'll turn to you now. You were there when the European External Action Service was born under a female high representative, Catherine Ashton. There were high hopes that this visibility would mean more women in high places. Was that hope uh, inside the service as well? And if so, what happened to that ambition? Well, um, yes, that hope was there, certainly amongst those of us who worked on the creation of the External Action Service. Um, I had the privilege myself of being part of that small team. There was David O'Sullivan, who um, even in his earlier experiences as Secretary General in the Commission and then in, in trade, had worked very hard on promoting this. Uh, Catherine Ashton set out with the ambition um, to move this forward. Um, but I think um, uh, Christina is right. There's a question of political will, which was there. Was there a structural plan? I'm not sure we had enough of a structural plan. Uh, there was so much else we had to structure, including building a service. And then I think it has to be said that all of this, and Christina knows it well, uh, operates within a very rigid legal framework. The staff regulation doesn't help us. Uh, one really has to um, pursue with determination efforts uh, to break out of those frameworks. It's very easy for those who are less convinced uh, to hide 
behind the regulations, behind the legal provisions and say, well, we, we just have to let things follow their course. Tell me what that means. What do you mean behind, how can you hide behind the regulations? When you do senior position recruitments, you go through a, a lengthy process of pre-selection, preliminary interviews, secondary interviews, and so on, all the way until the guys at the top have uh, to take a decision. At those stages, um, the preliminary stages, uh, the focus, rightly in many ways, is entirely on non-discrimination, but non-discrimination in a legal manner, saying you just look at the CV, you look at the qualifications, you look at the experience. Uh, You cannot come in with a positive discrimination. And that meant that with already a weak recruitment base, because the number of women eligible for promotion within the system is disproportionately low. It made it more difficult uh, to push them through. Then there were many other factors too. I think that since then, a lot has been done and a lot is being done within the EAS. It's, it's, co- it's catching up in as much as now there is both an EAS gender advisor and a plan that has been worked out, quite a detailed plan, consulted with the council and with uh, the commission, uh, as well as to a degree with member states. So things are moving and they're moving in the right direction, but it has been slow. It's also been very, very difficult to encourage member states to put forward senior female candidates for the different posts, which has been another challenge for us in, in the rather sort of unusual setup that the EAS is. I think we should talk more about that definitely because um, I remember looking into that when Catherine Ashton came on and, um, you know, people were throwing up their hands and saying, oh, we just don't have the candidates. So let's talk more about that definitely later in the show. But just to get to Corinna and this very exciting uh, letter that, um, that she drafted and sent, uh, not just drafted, wrote, published, sent to uh, High Representative Joseph Burrell. If everything you're saying about the birth of the EEAS and all of the ambitions are so, why are we still in the place we are today, Corinna, where you're having to plead that all four top jobs not go to men? So tell us what made you write this letter and send it off. And, you know, it got mentioned in Politico, which is a big deal here in Brussels. And tell us if, uh, if you've gotten any response. Sure. Um, thanks, Terry, and it's delighted to be part of this with Christina and Christian. Um, I really wanted to, yeah, I guess, create some waves in Brussels and the EAS um, and really, you know, seeing Helga Schmidt's de- pending departure as an opportunity to remind the High Representative Borrell of his commitment, which he actually made in front of the European Parliament when... Um, you know, he was considered for the job. And it's actually building on the work um, that has already been done by Helga, but also others, um, to take this a step further and really commit to gender parity on all levels, not just the higher positions, but actually on all levels of the EAS. Because I think, you know, it's, it's not enough to just have a gender advisor. It's not enough to have women in senior positions, but you actually need to reconfigure the whole institution and change the the processes of 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 how things are being done and that in some ways starts with you know the hiring process so i put forward some recommendations how to maybe do this differently and you know the fundamental basis is sort of really consider a diverse a candidate pool and sort of builds on that um 
So for me, it's not just about having more women in the position, but it's really about changing the institution and the processes. And by that sort of really leading to a fundamental shift on how we look at foreign policy, national security, European security. And so, yeah, it goes beyond just people and numbers, but it's a rethink actually. And did you get any response? Um, I got some responses from the European Parliament who were very happy that there was sort of an organization like Women International Security sort of joining them in the push to remind uh, Borrell on his commitment. I got a few individual ones as well who said, yeah, this, you know, much needed. Um, let's hope Borel gets it. Conina, can I, and Terry and colleagues, can I yeah. mention something? I yeah. think for the audience might be good to know that uh, structurally the processes of um, organizing the, the professional teams in the institutions and the external action service are a little bit different. And... Uh, the external action service is to be open, at least one third, I, Christian can correct me, to recruitments that come from member states. Whereas the commission, the council, the parliament, there are um, uh, selection processes which are rather organized, structured, and it's where there can be an impact on the practical plan to increase number of women in middle management and senior management because the human resources management allows for the implementation of plans, uh, trainings, accelerators in a way for women. In the case of the external action service, I didn't mention it before, I think there is this difference which sometimes is being used, if not as an excuse, as a an explanation why in top middle management and in senior management and in offices, ambassadors abroad, etc., means a delay. And here is where the political will has to be there to tell member states, well, unless you send us candidates which are women, we will be very tough in the selection processes. So, uh, asking and demanding, pleading and uh, uh, ensuring that uh, member states send women to these positions for me is, is critical because you need to be able to choose among a, a pool of uh, well-trained and ready, professionally ready people. That is what Christine was mentioning. The process of selections when you reach that moment are, are very difficult. But I would also want to mention the importance as well of the gender lenses on policies, gender lenses on security and defense, crisis management, uh, policies that the EU is now developing, uh, for example, for Africa. Without a gender lens on the number of policies that have to be structured with, uh, you know, in this case, Africa and other continents or Latin America. I think this is a very fundamental. And one cannot say that only women can have the gender lenses, but it is super important to have more at the, the, the positions of drafting the policies and then having them approved by uh, the member states in the different committees, et cetera, et cetera. 
Maybe I could just jump in there to say, I think Christina is right. There is always the risk that for the EAS, the composite nature of the staff becomes an excuse for not achieving what you want to achieve. There are also difficulties, uh, objectively. Uh, I was wondering, I was just playing with a thought, should the EAS apply for top management positions? The Secretary General and the, the deputies, the same principle that von der Leyen has tried to apply for the Commission, to say you have to put forward two candidates. Yes and no. Firstly, I mean, in the Commission, that's at the political level. And these are civil servants and not politicians. Which means, Christian, in a difference, that, that they don't have to be nominated by their member government? Exactly. I, mean, I was they, going to come to that. They, they apply they, from outside. They, okay, sorry. They apply. Yeah. Yeah, they are not right. nominated. They apply. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I mean, you, you, how, how far can you restrict the possibility for people to apply? I think it should be more that you actively go out and encourage more people to apply. I was, I will say, very disappointed when I saw um, the, the lists of candidates for the three deputy section posts. Um, I had one and my two colleagues who also left, so we now have a new set of three. They're all very competent. Um, there's, a, there's no shadow over them, but they are all men. There were very, very few women candidates. Okay, so there was one who we, we thought would have a very good fit. In the end, she withdrew for personal reasons. And I think that is um, in some way symptomatic. I think women are more likely to do that, not because they're shy, not because they're, they're timid, but because maybe they're more realistic about looking at what this actually means and coming to the conclusion, no, that's not the equation I want to have in my life at this time. So from that point of view, there there is a real challenge. I also wanted to come back to what Corinna said, um, and Christina picked it up too. This has to happen at every level. What happens at the top level is an illustration. It's symptomatic, but it has to happen at every level, partly because that's the way to create a basis for further growth, partly to change the mindset, to create the gender lens more or to integrate more fully the gender lens so that everybody thinks. And let me uh, whiz quite a long time back now. This is about 2005 or 2006. I was working on the Middle East and we were setting up the EU border assistance mission on the border between Israel or Israel slash Palestine and Egypt at Rafa. And we did that in record time. We worked really hard to get it done. At the very end, I remember in the political and security committee, uh, one delegation, no prizes for getting which one, the Swedes, asked, had we done a gender analysis? And the number of other people around the table exploded and said, don't be ridiculous. This is about border control. It's about security. There's no gender dimension to this. They're entirely wrong. Of course, there is a a very important gender dimension, even down to a simple thing, like uh, at a sensitive border like Rafa, there's going to be a lot of personal searches. Had they thought of building up a system where you can respect men and women at the border? Luckily, we had thought of it. But it, it just shows there was no mindset. There was no gender lens amongst most people around the table. That's the sort of thing we have to build in. And that's the sort of thing that will be built in much more naturally if we have naturally mixed teams of men and women at every level. 
Can I jump in on that? Um, because I actually, I wanted to pick up on um, what Christian just said. I'm not saying that women are necessarily better leaders or expert, whatever. What I'm hoping we get to eventually is precisely what Christian just said, diverse teams. So that somehow, you know, people get it in sort of their heads that as they're looking to fill a position, that the candidates that they're considering are also being considered into what are they bringing to the already existing teams. So, and it precisely by bringing more diverse people, in this case, sort of women, that you get new perspectives, new experiences that can flow into the sort of policymaking um, process. So it's really about the diversity of teams sort of working together so we can have the perspectives of all the people that are part of society um, sort of represented. The other thing is it's also about, you know, this gender awareness. And I'm very, very grateful for all the work that uh, Christian has done. I mean, this is not men versus women. Um, it is really oh. about sort of creating this gender awareness within the sort of foreign policy making process that um, allows people to really look at how our policies are impacting the people sort of on the ground. And it's actually a question I would love to uh, sort of throw back to both Christina and, and Christian in the sense of, you know, what is an individual's possibility? Uh, you know, you've both worked in these institutions and foreign ministries what can an individual actually do in a sort of larger team? What weight does he or she have in terms of really pushing an institution to become more gender aware, gender sensitive, and, and, and taking those different impacts in it so that the outcome um, is really fairer at the end? But maybe for a later conversation. But <laughs> No, let's do it. <laughs> First of all, Corina, now that your letter has been mentioned, congratulations for your letter. As always, you say great things in this uh, soft and very inclusive way, which definitely uh, have an impact. So, you know, I want to thank you for taking the leadership. You know, when we are, particularly this week, celebrating the... Um, Beijing 25 anniversary with the big summit at the United Nations, when we are uh, recalling the 25th anniversary of, of the, you know, the gender rights, are, uh, the women's rights are uh, human, human rights, you know, this is the moment to, to strike these uh, type of messages that you, you have combined. You know, I think individually, we all can do a lot. The higher up, the more, it's clear. I'll give you an example. Our prime minister is going to intervene in the uh, Beijing Plus 25 summit at the UN. And uh, the message is going to be Spain has a feminist government and a feminist foreign policy. So, and, and it percolates all the layers down. Our foreign minister, you know her. She's uh, well known in Brussels, commission official. She's also on that. And uh, I just had the conversation with um, representatives of uh, a number of uh, initiatives in Africa. How do we bring gender lenses or what do we do? I work a lot in Latin America. Christian knows how terrible the question of inequality, gender inequalities in Latin America is. And what has happened with COVID makes it worse. So we have to bring this. And I'll give you an example. 
when COVID started, we uh, proposed, uh, Spain proposed general assembly resolution to ensure that what was happening had a response which was not gender blind, as it had happened in the previous crises, 2008, where women were the losers, much more than the many losers in the world. And uh, you know what happened is that we couldn't bring it to vote because the system organized at the United Nations only allowed for either consensus or not adoption. There was no consensus because some member states did not accept, UN member states did not accept the uh, formulations there. You know, there is a regression on women's rights, uh, sexual education, and uh, reproductive uh, rights, etc. So we have it on hold until we can go bring, we can bring it to vote. There is no doubt we will have the majority. So uh, for this to, to mention that at all levels, top level is very important, but we as professionals, heads of unit, uh, uh, team leaders, uh, EU delegation ambassadors or uh, number twos or uh, etc. No doubt, if we are able to to ensure that this vision percolates, there is an important role for all of us. I'd like to commend Corinna also for the letter. I, it was a very good letter. It was a timely letter, uh, and I should say that when I find it inconceivable that we would end up in a situation at the end of this year where none of the four top positions in the EAS uh, would be occupied by a woman. Equally, um, there will be a number of changes at the next level down, the managing directors and the number of the directors, whatever it is, about eight or ten managing directors and a little more, 10, 15 directors. It will be a terrible missed opportunity if we do not see the EAS work to improve the gender balance at those levels. Um, again, Do you have any inside have sources? At every level below as well, but we have to set the example. We have to show at those levels. Christian, do you have anybody inside telling you how that's going? How those, how those appointments are going no, at the have, second level? I have, I have kept a modest distance from it. I think it's best <laughs> given um, that I was very actively involved until I left. I think it would not be seemly if I were now trying to follow too closely. Um, so I can give my exhortations, but no more than that. I would also say, though, coming back to the issue of making this percolate through the system uh, or trickle down, whichever you prefer, I, I think that there is quite a lot that can be done by the individual manager, looking at the composition of their teams within a directorate, within a division or a unit, uh, whatever team level you want to look at, in your own interest, because you want to have all the different facets. Uh, this is about uh, men and women. It's certainly not men against women. It's men and women together, as well as looking at other facets. Um, the privilege of working in the EU institutions with all the cultural, political, uh, and administrative backgrounds that come with a diverse geography also helps us build diverse teams. I think one of the things that has actually maybe become easier now, which we tried to develop and which was mostly of interest to women who were also mothers, uh, was distance work. 
Now, there was a lot of resistance to distance work saying, well, you know, it's not the same, etc., etc. Well, now everybody is distance working and they like it, they don't like it, but we can, we can make it function. There's a lot of that coming when you talk about parentage. We know that women tend to take more time off for looking after the children when they're at a young age uh, and so on. There's been a lot of difficulty overcoming that, uh, they, they say, overcoming the prejudice against that in things like promotion exercises or career development. Um, I regularly had to put my foot down quite hard when people said, well, yeah, but she's been off for the last year or she's only been working half time for X period. And I said, well, yeah, do you know why? Um, And has she done good work or has she not done good work? Nothing else should matter. And that too is a question of mindset that we really have to still work on. Attitudes are changing, but there's a timeline. We'd also like to know, uh, from your perspectives, all three of you, what are the benefits of gender-balanced and diverse staff? How does this make institutions more effective? And also, what are the benefits for men? We always say that it's good for women, but what about for, for men working in these institutions? Can I say better policies, better implementation of the policies. That means better results. That means more impact. That means uh, we fulfill uh, in a more diligent matter the ambitions, the objectives that we have set up for ourselves, for the, in this case, the community, the, the European Union's foreign policy team of actors that includes uh, everybody. There is no doubt that the formulations of policies are richer, they are um, more effective, they take more angles into account, therefore the impact increases, the positive impact increases. Yeah, I think that's right. It's a, it's a question of making sure that within a team, or within a policy process, you touch all bases. Uh, and the more diverse the team, the more likely you are to be able to catch all different angles. Um, so I think I mean, it, it's... it's it's not rocket science. Uh, it's, to me, fairly straightforward, and it does lead to better and more complete policy. It also, I mean, what's in it for men, I think, um, it makes the workplace more fun. It's, it's, I mean, you don't want a workplace that looks radically different from what life does outside work. Um, if I just went into the office and I saw nothing but besuited and betied men, that would be pretty sad. Uh, as you see, I'm no longer wearing a tie. I haven't put one on since I left the office on the 1st of March. Uh, and I will wait as long as I can. But that's a different matter. But I, I think just having that diverse community at work makes it more fun. Maybe just one additional point to add to what both Christina and Christian said. For me, it's about the credibility of Europe or the EU. Um, I mean, we go out and, you know want to have uh, peace talks where there are women on the table, whether it's Syria or Afghanistan. Well, if our own uh, teams that show up are not diverse, I mean, what does it say about, you know, the the policies that that we preach? So, you know, we give all that foreign aid to women and uh, girl rights, but if we don't sort of practice what we preach, um, it makes Europe as a whole look uh, pretty sad. 
Quite right. Unfortunately, the time passes so quickly. And um, I'm going to um, sort of do another lightning round of asking you all. You all have been working on this for so long. And did you think that we would be in a different place today? I mean, every time that we name new women to high positions, and I mean, not just Ursula von der Leyen, but now we've got Christine Lagarde, you know, at the Central Bank. And that, that was a place that was a bastion of men for so long. You know, did you think that in 2020, um, we'd be in a different place when you were starting to put together these policies? And Christina, I mean, you were at NATO uh, before you were in the EU institutions. And that, you know, used to be very male. And then you know, we had Rose Gottemuller. So, you know, little, little, little steps. But when you first started really paying attention and devoting part of your careers to making the, trying to make the institutions resemble the population of, of the world, would you have thought that in 2020, we'd be I, in, a, in a better place now? You know, you know me, you all know me, I'm quite optimistic. And I see progress, definitely. And I see a lot of work and a lot of good people, men and women, extremely eager to advance. But for me, this is too slow. I don't know if you, friend, you colleagues remember that, uh, not the same, not a similar letter, it was a different one, was sent to, by Wise uh, in uh, 2010 uh, on the same topic. I didn't know that. Yeah, similar. It was a short message. Corina, do you remember it? Um, it was a, a, a previous team, previous wise team, but with the same aim, right? Let's make our teams diverse, impactful, etc., etc. So the only thing I can say on this question is that I think it's too slow. So I think that is, we need to go faster. And I think that's why we need this political will and a little bit more of determination. We cannot wait to 25 more years for the Beijing platform to be implemented. Huh? I think the, the urgencies are there. And um, look at the numbers of foreign ministers' women. When you look at the family photo in the European Union, or in the other uh, international organizations, right? Things are changing. We'd like them to change faster. Uh, and I agree with you, Christina, we should be optimists and we should be ambitious. And that, of course, means that we're impatient and we would like to see more change. But there is also a gradual change, both in composition and in attitude. And if you allow two very quick flashbacks, one, I've had the privilege throughout my career at working in different stages with uh, great women, great women who are known publicly, great women uh, who were just part of the service I was working in. The very first time I had a woman boss, she was a head of unit in the Swedish foreign ministry. And I was very surprised when I started working there, many other colleagues uh, from the ministry, they sort of asked me, did I like it? Did I enjoy my work? Was it a good atmosphere? Was it a good team? And so on. And I, I thought it was great. I was really happy. And I didn't, it took me a long time to realize that what they actually wanted to ask me was, what was it like to have a woman boss? I hadn't stopped to think about it. And she's one of the best bosses I ever had. But that, I don't think anybody would ask that today. I really don't think, I mean, if they, if they would, I would send them off to a sort of a, a retraining camp. But it, <laughs> it, I mean, and the other thing is, I remember when, we, we, when Sweden joined the EU 
1995, and when we were doing the the sort of the campaign for the vote to get people to vote in favour of joining, uh, at one stage there was a photo published of Kurapair, just an illustration of Kurapair as an important body. Um, there were all the ambassadors, and in those days they had two people next to each other, so there were about 50, 60 people in the room. There was one woman, she was sitting in the back row. One woman in the back row. That has changed profoundly as well. There is further progress to be made, but these things, they are evolving. It's a little bit like, so it's not quite like watching paint dry. Uh, maybe it's, it's, it's more like sort of um, glaciers moving down the mountain, whatever. And of course, you'd like them to move down faster. Um, not that we want that in climate change days, but um, you want to see movement. We want to be impatient. And by being impatient, maybe we can encourage others to do more. Corinna, that's a good place for you to wrap up as the author of the um, impatience document of late. Well, I'm currently thinking about how do I get to change this rigid legal framework of the EAS. It might be a bit of a tough, uh, uh, tough step for, for WISE, but maybe as final point, I mean, Christina mentioned the, the political will. I think we can work on that task, but we have to do it on different levels. There is the political will, there is the institutional bodies that need to adapt. But it's the women themselves. We can do a lot in our own sort of um, framework and sort of respect the sphere by stepping forward, by being part of very diverse networks. It's one of the things that I will always remember Helga Schmidt for is as she was working through her various jobs, whether it's in the German foreign ministry, but then also in the European Union context, um, the the skill and she had in maintaining different type of networks um, inside the institutions as well as outside um, with very very different uh, people that I think made her this role model that um, she is. And that's a great note to end on. Some encouraging words for our listeners. Time flies fast when you're having fun. Thank you so much to the three of you for your time and your contributions. This has been a really rich discussion and we can't wait to have you all back next time. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank, Thank you. you. So as we've been discussing, there's a long way to go to reach gender equality in staffing, despite pledges to do so at the very top levels. That's true. And we've heard that more females need to apply in addition to there being a more proactive effort to achieve gender balance on the side of the institutions. As we were creating this episode, Terry and I were talking about how touched we were by the death of U.S. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who did so much to improve equality for women. Among her famous quotes, women belong in all places where decisions are being made. And my favorite and a relevant one when we're talking about three of four recent EEAS appointments going to men, Ginsburg would say, people ask me sometimes, when? When do you think it will be enough? When will there be enough women on the court? And my answer is, when there are nine. This episode of Wise Brussels Voices honors her memory. Thank you so much for joining us. 